Good afternoon and good evening to everybody and welcome, welcome, welcome to another INE Live. I'm your host today, Neil Bridges, Chief Content Officer here at INE, and thank you for joining in for today's live stream. Today we're going to be talking about the future of cloud, and, and for most of you who have heard me talk about this before, you know this is an incredible passion of mine. I think that that just in the last 18 months, we've seen so much advancement and so much you know drive towards the cloud. Um, it's just really solidified its importance of this, and so I'm super excited. Um, you know, it's 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 a very very hot topic right now. There are very very few fields that are as interesting and as completely wide open as cloud right now, and it is something that is changing the way that we all think work live and play um, is you know just the ever nature ever changing nature of cloud is really impacting us all in a lot of different ways and today we're going to be examining really that future of cloud and really what lies in store as we all begin to harness that power um, first and foremost just a couple of house cleaning items that we always typically do uh, just we, we are multi-streaming INE Live across uh, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch live right now. Um, do make sure you like, follow, and subscribe on whatever social platform that you're using uh, so that you can stay in the loop whenever we go live. That's critically important. We want to be where you are. We want to make sure that you have the resources that you need to to consume uh, this information wherever you happen to be streaming to us from. And so we do want to make sure you get those notifications when we do go live. Um, we also have chat going, and real quick, I want to. I, I took a pause there because I wanted to, to, to really kind of emphasize this. The, the INE team that is in chat right now, um, you know, the the moderating team, the social media team that's in chat right now that that's hanging out with us. I want to thank them personally so very much for their dedication. Every Tuesday, they're here making sure that we provide top notch moderation support for you. So, thank you so much uh, to the moderator team. Um, that is in chat listening to me right now. Listen, chat is there because we want to hear from you, right? The, the purpose of these being live, and one of the reasons that I love this concept of INE Live is that there's very few places in the world that you can talk to experts like we have today on the stream. And so it's a fantastic opportunity for you to drop your comments into chat. Make sure you uh, you ask any questions inside of chat. Put that cue in front of it. We'll be doing our ever-loving best to absolutely ask as many questions or get as many questions answered as possible on today's stream. So with that being said, um, I'd like to take a moment um, to talk about our guest for today's INE Live. On today's stream, we do have Mike Pfeiffer, who is the founder and CEO of CloudSkills.io. He spent more than 20 years in the IT industry and recently worked as an engineer and a cloud architect for both Microsoft, Microsoft and Amazon Web Services. Mike has written six books, which is six more than I've ever been able to write in my entire life. Um, he's created more than 35 courses. He's produced more than 120 podcasts and he's trained more than half a million students throughout his entire career. Mike, on behalf of the INE staff, on behalf of our entire uh, INE Live community, thank you so very much for joining us on today's live stream. Was there anything else about your intro that you'd like to uh, like to add on to? Well, first of all, thanks, Neil. I'm really excited to be here. I would like to add that, yeah, I'm actually, uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I am an INE customer from a long time ago. So, Oh, wow. Kind of cool for me to be here. Um, you know, I was a customer probably 10, 12 years ago. So yeah, outside of that, you got my intro perfect. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, so we are here to talk about cloud, but you know, before we race all the way to the end, um, let's level set for everybody who's listening because we do have a wide range of folks who listen to INE Live, everywhere from new entry folks to the career field to folks who are incredibly experienced. Let's talk about one of the things that I think is probably one of the most confusing parts that people hear when they talk about cloud, right? Which is private cloud, public cloud, and a hybrid cloud model. Can you kind of talk through the differences between those three and why we have three different models for cloud? Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, that's also something that's been coming up a lot lately in my conversations with people that are doing stuff in the field, right? Because public cloud, putting everything in something like Amazon or AWS or Google Cloud Platform, um, those are all great options. Um, and, but, you know, not all of us get the luxury of actually being able to do greenfield projects starting from scratch in a cloud. Some people do. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of us um, are still dealing with stuff that's on premises, you know. So going public cloud is, you know, essentially you're just doing everything in cloud. You're doing everything there in Microsoft Azure, AWS, things like that. 
Um, but when you start getting into the hybrid conversation, that's an important topic because a lot of people are really thinking about that. And there's a lot of companies out there, especially in the enterprise space, that it's going to take them three, five, maybe 10 years to move all the way into public cloud com completely. Um, some may never completely go all in. Um, so it's really important time. And then, you know, hybrid cloud, people have been doing that for years, running v VMs and stuff like mm. that on prep. Um, and so those are kind of the big major differences, you know, and I think that, like I said, in the conversations that are coming up, you know, hybrid is a big topic because it's, it's honestly hard to do that. It's hard to what work you know, in public cloud and on-prem at the same time. What about something like multi-cloud, right? Because we oftentimes see, and I've seen this in a couple of organizations too, where maybe they start out in something like AWS, but I've actually seen some weird, you know, you know, conversations that have been had that due to competitive reasons or due to compatibility reasons, or even some of the data transfer rates, they oftentimes start talking about adopting a multi-cloud type scenario as well. Can you kind of talk through some of the, the things you've seen around that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because there's kind of two different angles that I see people uh, bringing that up for, right? So number one, there is the scenario where you've started with kind of like an anchor, like maybe Microsoft Azure, right? And then you find out somebody else inside your organization on another team is using something for a POC proof of concept in AWS, right? And so now uh, as an organization, you got to figure out how do you get your arms around all this stuff? Um, so that's kind of like sometimes multi-cloud chooses you instead of you choosing it <laughs> type of thing. Um, and then the other the other way around it, you know, that we see people talking about, which is I think very early, is you know intentionally spreading a workload across multiple clouds. And in terms of tooling and services and things like that, there's stuff out there um, that can help with that, but it's still like you know very early days for doing that. And, and the big question is, you know, what problem am I trying to solve there? Um, you know, and if it's trying to, you know, eliminate, you know, maybe being pinned to a certain cloud platform and there is conversations there and, and things that make sense, but in terms of effectively, like really spreading a workload across multiple clouds, um, we're still in the infancy of that, but there is people out there, there are people out there, um, that are building products and services to support that. So at some point that'll be a big thing. It's it's funny you mentioned the um you know you know you know multi cloud chooses you perspective because I think that that hits the nail on the head right you've got some and I hate to use the word shadow IT in an organization right but I think because of how easy it is that Microsoft or Amazon has made it that anybody in the business unit can simply swipe a credit card and stand up an AWS instance or stand up an Azure instance that they can just really just start doing cloud without any type of oversight. If you had to to name maybe some of the top three challenges that that CIOs face when looking at that type of shadow IT model in their organization, what do you think that those are? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think number one, the ability to easily spend stuff up, which you pointed out, I've seen that a bunch of times where, you know, somebody inside the organization will just go spin up a free tier account, do a POC because they know that platform really well. And then they end up leaving the organization and nobody realizes that, hey, we actually have something running <laughs> uh, that people are using, right? Um, that happens all the time. So I think that governance has to be, you know, put on a pedestal from day one. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of organizations are doing what they call a uh, cloud center of excellence, right? Where mm. you get stakeholders from all over the organization. Um, and everybody's thinking through those problems of, you know, what what issues were we going to run into, um, you know, for networking team, for app team, uh, for the DevOps team doing deployments, for architecture. Uh, so governance from step one and getting everybody, stakeholders from multiple teams in IT, um, thinking about that is number one. So that'd be the first thing. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, upskilling is a major mm. consideration here because, like I said earlier, some people will just go with, you know, they'll default to where their skills at are right now. And, you know, if I've been working on AWS the last five years, and that's an easy way for me to get an app up and running, um, if there's no guardrails or processes or procedures in place to keep me, maybe I'm supposed to be doing Azure with everybody else, um, you know, that's a consideration, right? So I need to make, as a leader, um, I need to make it easy for my people to continue to learn, show up every day and and have the tools and the, and the time to actually learn uh, to do that. And you know, I think from a, a third place perspective, um, you know, continuous learning, I guess, would be one of the biggest things. I see a lot of companies and teams sending people to uh, classes or conferences a couple of times a year. And I think that in order to really nail this, like continuous learning easily every week uh, has to be a major consideration, something to think about. 
So it's, it's interesting you bring up governance in there, right? And, and oftentimes when people hear governance, they start to shriek and they go, ooh, no, the non-technical side of what it is that we do. Um, I want you to dive a little deeper in that. What are some of the governance challenges and who owns the governance of cloud? Is it the CIO organization? Is it the developer group? Is it the security group that owns governance? How do you, how do you see that working out? Yeah, I think that that's, it's an interesting conversation. It's definitely, it needs to be higher up, right? So top of the organization, depends on the size of the company and what kind of structure that's in place. Um, and depending on the size of the company, that may be the security team, that could be the uh, the CISO. Um, but you know, ultimately from top down, those things need to be mandated in my opinion, you know, there mm -hmm. has to be a decision. And what I think you know comes into the conversation with governance, and I used to, when I was doing way more field work, I would run into this a lot. Um, you go in and you get into somebody's account um, and you see in there that there's just stuff that was deployed without any kind of intention. Mm. Nothing is tag tagged properly. There's, um, you know, lack of consistency. And what happens is you get going to try to test something out and you get far enough down the road. You weren't thinking about policy. You weren't thinking about uh, tagging and cost optimization and you just get in too deep. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest common problems where there's a lack of governance is you're opening stuff up when you don't realize it. Um, you know, and then you're not thinking about, Hey, how do we do this in a way that's cost effective, scalable performance, um, and, and governance actually helps with all that. So it's not just strictly, a you know, a, um, a security exercise. It's not a boring exercise. It's insanely important step one mm -hmm. to get figured out. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I'm so glad you brought security into that mix too, because I do want to kind of pivot over to your perspective, right? So you spent a ton of time, you know, doing architecture work for Microsoft, doing architecture work for AWS cloud instances. Um, you know, all of those skills are highly, highly relevant on the, the IT front of things. But you mentioned the security side, right? And with cloud um, and with the developer team really kind of leading the way in terms of spinning up these you know, AWS or Azure instances for proof of concepts, you know, we've recently seen an uptick, a lot of these API hacks or, you know, these programming interface hacks that that as organizations are standing up um, uh, new applications, hackers are being able to find these, uh, these APIs that are being used for, you know, multi-cloud tenancy, hybrid cloud models, things like that. What would kind of be from your experience, your top three, you know, cybersecurity threats that you think that, 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 you know, cloud architects should be on the lookout for as they're looking to make that move into, into cloud? Yeah. So I think <clears throat> these days, you know, number one, there's way better support from a policy perspective than there used to be even just like three years ago. Um, so that would be a place where I would be spending a lot of time, which means, you know, what kind of instances can people spin up? You know, what capabilities do they have? What could potentially be left running? Um, that might cost me something later. You know, that's an additional thing on top of the security. Um, but then also, you know, thinking about things in terms of, you know, just the basics of working with like network security groups. I've seen lots of cases where people, because it's easy, right? They just whitelist a bunch of ports and protocols just to get stuff talking to each other. And next thing you know, right, you're like, you're exposed. And that happens all the time. Mm. Um, and, and to your point, you know, we've never had this ability to like spin up all this stuff so easily. Um, and I've found that a lot of times people don't fully understand the shared responsibility model that comes with being mm. a, a cloud first or just a cloud you know, based organization. So there's stuff that the platforms are doing for you but you really got to understand like what are your responsibilities and so you know the interconnectivity of the different services is a big deal and it's been exciting to see the platforms do a good job there because now they're doing things where you know you can have managed services uh, talking to your instances inside a private virtual network for example you know um, so that's kind of cool where in the past we would be concerned potentially about leaving a virtual network to go access some public service um, now we, we have ways of of doing that um, but you know, that's something else that people sometimes don't realize. And AWS really got hit with that a couple of years ago when people were leaving S3 buckets open like crazy, right? Oh, they're so, still leaving S3 buckets open like crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so that's still a thing, even though there's a giant orange icon that says this is a public bucket, right? Um, so to me, it's still the basics, honestly. And when I see people run into the stuff, it's still the basics of you know those little things policy, mm -hmm. uh, interconnectivity, communication, um, and not really respecting the shared responsibility model. 
I, I love that. I, I really do, because like we talk in cybersecurity very, very frequently about getting back to the basics. There's no no need for fancy technology, no need for, you know, all the latest buzzwords that come out of the industry sometimes. Sometimes it's really just doing just the basics. And so I'm so glad you hit on that. Um, we do have a, a question. It does look like it came in from Facebook that does seem pretty apt. So I want to get your opinion on this one. So Zach um, from Facebook says, you know, he's back to the he or she is back over to the governance uh, point that you made earlier. Right. I'm thinking um, about the governance part of it and asking about whether starting with CGEIT, which is the uh, the certified uh, governance of, of enterprise IT uh, certification, is a good idea. I noticed on the cybersecurity side, we have a, a lack of, um, of of real governance focused, um, you know, training and certification side. What's kind of your take on people who are looking to to get more understanding or get more training on that governance side of things? Yeah, I love that question because security or excuse me, certifications have always been such a big uh, focus for me. In fact, when I kind of mentioned earlier, my uh, my customership, if you would call it that at INE was to get I was thinking about getting CCIE certified. So anyways, I'm a huge fan of using certs as a starting point, right, to ignite whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and I like vendor neutral stuff. So uh, because, you know, it gets you thinking about hmm, how would I do this in AWS, Azure, Google and so on. Um, so that's, you know, to me, the certification benefit is just getting your mind on these topics and thinking about stuff you normally probably wouldn't think about at all. Right. Um, so I like vendor neutral stuff. I'd like, you know, CompTIA not to go off in, in another direction, but like, you know, organizations like that are doing vendor neutral certs are awesome. And then at the same time, you know, there are security specialty certs now for the major cloud vendors. So you could go to Azure and become a security specialist. Same thing with AWS. Not 100% sure on Google. Um, they may have one there and that would cover. Is, the is, is, Google, is, is Google still a thing? <laughs> <laughs> with their uh, with the, with their three percent market share, don't mean to bash right, on yeah. Google. We know that we know that they're going to come up. They're, they'll they'll find their footing eventually. <laughs> they will. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's my one where I'm always I'm always like I don't know about Google. Like every time I'm like going through a list like this, I'm like, who knows of Google? I'm not sure about that. But I mean, I love the, what they're the, doing over there. The, the three data scientists listening to us right now are like, we use Google Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, like that, that's a good way to go. So no matter what, certs are awesome for getting your eye on the ball. Mm. Um, but the other thing is it's not going to take you the whole way there. And mm. I've been talking about that a lot this year. You know, we spent a lot of time in 2019 and 2020 uh, just helping people get certified because that's what the market needed, right? And um, that's changing now. People are getting certified and now the market's like, hey, we need people that can do stuff. So <laughs> yes, um, like certs are important and it's a great way to ignite your career in cloud, but you need to continue to move forward and do hands-on um, once you get past that. And for somebody doing governance, that might be, you know, maybe some paper labs, but it's also gonna be hands-on work where you're tagging instances and applying policies and thinking about cost op optimization and, and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm 100% on board with certifications as a starting point for sure. It, I want to get more on this certification conversation because I know you've done a lot of work in this area. I want to kind of talk more about some of the other parts around um, cloud, though, that I do think is um, is kind of key to, to, to talk about. There was a, a research piece uh, that was done by another company in 2021 that's talked about the state of the cloud report. Um, and, and as you can imagine, and this is something that I love to pick on, right, is that pre-COVID, everybody had a cloud-first strategy. It was something that a lot, oftentimes a lot of CIOs talked about, about having a cloud-first strategy. But I think COVID really kind of thrust a lot of people into actually really executing on their cloud first strategy. As a matter of fact, the, the 2021 state of the cloud report talks that, um, you know, you know, 62% of the companies that are in the enterprise, um, you know, business had a slightly higher than planned adoption ratio of, of going to cloud in a post COVID world. What do you think some of the challenges or what do you think some of the drivers were from your perspective that you saw that saw that massive ramp up of, of CI? CIOs taking their cloud-first strategy more seriously in, you know, in the last year? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I would say that there's a common combination of things. You know, I think one of the big factors that may not be obvious to everybody is like, you know, having the time to actually execute on some of these projects that were in progress. And, you know, when you have a team of 10, 20, 30 people that are on the road all the time because they're consulting, you know, that really digs into your ability to go off and execute on new projects. So I think, you know, just the basics of having people on the bench now when they weren't before opened up some lanes for people to go do projects. Because, um, 
I've been working with enterprises for five years in the cloud space after leaving AWS. And in the early days, they were just kicking the tires. But, you know, in the last three years, they've really been thinking hard and trying hard to get moving. And so I think that air cover, if you call it that, you know, giving people time was a big, um, big piece that doesn't normally get recognized from what I'm seeing. Um, but then also, you know, just the the need to have everybody working remotely, right? And there's all kinds of different scenarios where, you know, we need more compute instances to support an application. Now people are working remotely. Uh, we need storage, you know, more storage than before because we're recording videos. And now we need to start throwing stuff on the cloud to support that. Um, so I think there was a mix of a lot of different things, but the distributed workforce was a big contributor. And then also the people being at home and having time to learn and execute was a big piece too. I think I, I think that that's a that's a very valid point. I think the um you know from from the security perspective, it caught a lot of us off guard, right? Um, you know we we got thrust into this environment where you know everybody is now moving, you know, not moving, but accelerating their moves to the cloud, and and almost no security architecture was put in place to that. Almost no, you know, security design work was put in place to that move to the cloud. People were still trying to figure out you know, how do you use things like CASBs or cloud, you know, cloud service access brokers, you know, things like that um, to, to protect their infrastructure. And, and I think we really kind of saw the emergence of, um, you know, this idea that maybe we were unprepared to move to the cloud. Do you think that we're still unprepared to move to the cloud? Do you think that we're still in our infancy and in our understanding of what it takes to be successful in the cloud? I think that's a good question. I think it really depends on the organization. I think there's, you know, some teams that are perfectly primed for it because um, they get the skill set on on the team. But I think that the vast majority of organizations, you know, don't have that yet. And um, and you know, just going back to the point earlier, it's so easy now to spin stuff up that that's why a lot of stuff has been brought up without any security thought whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately. Um, it's going to be something that a lot of companies are going to struggle with because you got to build the skills internally to do that. And it's going to be hard to hire people off the street that are already doing it, you know, because a lot of this is stuff that's never been done before. <laughs> so that's going to be an interesting <laughs> challenge, right? Like, um, and I have a bunch of podcast episodes that I've been, I've been batch recording stuff for uh, my cloudskills.fm podcast last couple of weeks. I've been talking to executives and CEOs and stuff from major companies. It's going to be fun when those episodes come out. But the common repeating pattern that I'm hearing is that they're having to build the skills internally. They're just hiring people that are hungry mm. and then they're training and, and putting those people in, in place. So to answer your question, I, I don't think that it's too early for some, but I think that it's way early for a lot of companies. And, and that's a good message for leaders because I've actually had that. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember I was working at a place just down the street here and it was just a couple day workshop and getting their team familiar with cloud. And they were like, well, could you just write up a, a word document and tell us how to do this migration? To Azure? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, and it's like, you know, I think that there's a lot of teams out there that they're so new, they don't realize what that really means, you know? I, 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 that's a, that's a scary, scary proposition. Like, Hey, just go, just go write this word document and tell us how to do this. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, let's, let's deviate just a little bit. Cause there's something that, that I want to dive a little bit into. And I love, I love that we get to talk about the cloud side and we get to talk about the security side. Let's migrate into DevOps and DevSecOps a little bit. Um, what's the difference between those two and what roles do DevOps and DevSecOps you know, play in an organization. Yeah, definitely. So DevOps is interesting because it means different things, different people, right? Um, but truly what it is, it's the union of developers and operations uh, into a single role, right? So somebody that is multi-dimensional, that can do both. That's essentially what a DevOps engineer in my mind really is. Uh, but if you go to a certain place, right? Different places, um, they, they might have a different idea of what that means. You know, some people might just think that their cloud administrator is a DevOps engineer, right? They might just think that people doing cloud engineering are DevOps, but essentially what it really is, is that somebody that can participate on both the ops side and the developer side, or at least understands both, right? And, and can play a role in there. And um, so what a DevOps engineer generally does when they're doing that is, you know, they're working with the software team and making sure that everybody's collaborating on some kind of custom software usually. And if it's not custom, it's, you know, usually something that um, is some kind of resource that we can model in in code, 
right? So we could do templating with infrastructure as code, that kind of stuff, but everything runs through a pipeline. There's a bunch of checks along the way. And before we ever deploy to production, we know that we've got production ready code in that pipeline, right? And the whole idea is to automate everything and build, you know, kind of like this, you know, pipeline that's just putting out updates continuously and not blowing up everything. Uh, so that's really the big idea of a DevOps engineer. It's a hard job because you got to understand the infrastructure side. You got to understand what the developers are doing. And then you're also putting out fires all the time and making sure the deployments are going right. Um, and so the big difference between a DevOps engineer and DevSecOps is that, you know, you're thinking about the security stuff very early in the pipeline, almost first thing, you know? So if, if you've got a team that's doing infrastructure code and they're committing that into some kind of distributed version control system, like a Git repository, um, we want to know right after code gets checked in, you know, is that, is that code secure? And we're going to maybe do a static code analysis against it to make sure it doesn't have any vulnerabilities. We're going to make sure that there's no packages in that code that might be vulnerable to some kind of security issue. Um, so that's kind of the big difference between DevOps and DevSecOps. So it looks like that's that's an awesome comparison between the two. It looks like we had a quick question and it looks like it's pretty relevant coming in from chat. This comes in from Chris Frazier over on YouTube. He says, when going to the cloud, how does this affect your CI CD pipeline compared to on-prem systems? Yeah, it's an interesting question because if you are doing hybrid, you know, you got to think about that because you, know, you might be using some kind of CI CD service and you've got machines on-prem that are deployment targets. And then with firewalls and stuff like that, it can get kind of tricky. So depending on what you're using, you know, usually what you can do in those real tricky scenarios, you can have like an on-prem agent. Uh, so let's say, for example, you're like using GitHub Actions or, uh, or I'll use Azure Pipelines because I've been spending a lot of time in that last year or so building content around that. Um, and if you're using something like Azure Pipelines, it's been around a long time, you know, that's a cloud-based, well, they have an on-prem version, but there's a cloud-based version of it. And if you're trying to deploy on-prem, you need some kind of uh, agent on-prem that's listening to the pipeline service and, oh, you got to get some code for me? Cool. I'll go grab it and go deploy it. Um, so that's what you got to think about when you're thinking about using cloud-based CICD versus deployment targets being on-prem. There is ways to do it. But if you're thinking about that, then, well, let me say this. If you're thinking about doing true DevOps and using cloud resources, one of the things you want to make sure of is you're going to be able to talk to the systems that you got on-prem. So do your due diligence on those services and make sure that it's going to support that. Now, now, see, you say all this and my, my security hat immediately goes up and you're talking about having a, an agent running on a server that's listening for code pushes from anywhere in the world at any point in time. And we just got done not a year ago, you know, watching one of the, the worst supply chain hacks with SolarWinds happen where they actually infected the source code. What are some security implications? What should you know, you know, folks keep in mind who may not necessarily right now have security in the forefront of their mind when they're thinking about deploying something like that? Yeah, it's a good question because it could be a very different world, right? If you're if you've traditionally been doing security and infrastructure and now you're trying to work with developers, you have to understand, you know, depending on the language or the frameworks you're using, what kind of packages might be in that. And those packages could have vulnerabilities. So that's a world you might not be living in now. Now you need to understand what are developers doing? What are packages? Like you might not even know that yet, right? So it kind of depends on that background. Um, so that's going to be something where you're going to need to put on your developer hat and think about frameworks and um, you know different ways that code can be written to expose vulnerabilities. And that's going to depend on your team and what stacks you're picking, what frameworks, what languages. And then there's going to be some nuances for all that kind of stuff. So, you know, when it comes to DevOps, it really is, you know, um, if you're going to get in the game of doing that, or if you're just going to be doing these deployments as a security person, you know, you need to open up to that a little bit of, I need to understand what the devs are really doing. Um, and you don't have to sit there and build like the next version of Facebook or Twitter or like this monumental application, but you do need to be able to understand what the devs are doing. And that's going to be the hardest part, I think. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was about to ask you, like, what do you see that kind of breakdown of understanding being, right? Because when you start talking to traditional IT folks who may be traditional infrastructure, traditional networking, even some traditional security guys, um, you know, the, the need for code, the need for understanding developer language and speak has been pretty minimal in most of IT. Like the devs were over there doing their own thing. The rest of IT was over here doing their own thing. And we kept them all pretty separately. As you're looking towards, you know, maybe cloud, maybe DevOps, maybe DevSecOps, what do you kind of think that percentage breakdown is of being able to understand some level of coding to be successful in that industry? Well, 100% is what I would say. If you're going to operate in the DevOps or DevSecOps space, 
you should know the basics of computer science. Um, you know, you don't need to sit there and write code from scratch and build an application, you know, completely from scratch, but you need to understand computer science from a basic level. You should be able to look at code. And once you've been, um, once you've spent some time to understand the security implications of what your team is doing, you should be able to look at code and understand, all right, there may be some problems here and there's tooling out there that will help that. So, you know, you're not on your own there. And if things are set up right, for example, when a developer commits something, um, you can trigger uh, some tooling that will say, Hey, this isn't secure, but you should be as a security person able to interpret that information. Hmm. And relay to the developers, hey, look, dude, you got a function over here. It's violating this rule. We can't allow that to go to the next step in the pipeline. So, yeah, I would say 100%. Anybody that's going to operate in a DevOps, DevSecOps space needs to have some awareness um, around code because it's just going that direction. Everything's going to be in code. <laughs> as as you kind of go through that, I want to kind of put a, a finer point on it for some of our cybersecurity listeners who may be out there, right? And we talk about penetration testing, right? You mentioned a little bit with SAS and DAS or static code analysis and dynamic code analysis, right? Um when you look at the penetration testing lifecycle, typically pen tests are conducted against applications, regrettably, when they're in production already and they're already pushed out to the world and they're already getting hit by attackers. What is the right answer if you were to say to either you know somebody in DevOps, somebody in cloud, or somebody in security, where does pen testing belong in the, do in the software development lifecycle? Yeah, great question. And there's a lot of creative ways that we could do this. So especially with cloud, because it lends itself so well to being able to mimic environments, right? So if you're doing something in production uh, in cloud, it's very easy to replicate that in a QA or some kind of test environment, right? So it, the way I think about it would be if I don't want to sit there and hammer the production infrastructure with a pen test, you know, I'd have a pipeline with multiple stages and as mm -hmm. code gets checked in, it gets deployed to some kind of, you know, uh, environment that's designed specifically for that. So it's very close to production. It's not production. And, you know, we might do some tests against it. And once those are passed, we're like, cool, the code and the infrastructure has been proven good. And now we're going to release to that production environment. Um, so that's probably the the one thing that, you know, and it could be as early in the pipeline as you need, it, you know, so you might have multiple stages where um, you have stuff getting released to these different staging environments. For different reasons one place might be for uh, qaing the user experience of using the application and one might be for specifically for this which would be the penetration penetration test against that I, I think I think what you're really describing here is you're, you're describing kind of the evolution that really needs to happen in a lot of IT organizations where, you know, the security team needs to be more involved in the IT staff, in the developer staff, into these development processes. And it almost becomes more of a collaboration. I think we, in the cybersecurity side, we refer to it as the purple teaming concept where you're, you know, you're you're involved in all stages of an operation up until it goes into production. I think that's really what you're you're kind of describing there. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, this is really basic, but just communication across teams mm. doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen enough. All of us need to do a better job of, you know, being open to just communicating with other people and being able to speak their language. You know, it's a big deal. And if we don't take the time to do that, it's just going to make it harder and harder to move fast. So, so uh, it seems like this DevOps thing has gotten a lot of traction inside of chat. I saw a lot of questions coming around this. We got another one from a LinkedIn user. You kind of touched on a couple of these, you know, around, but let's be a little bit more specific and let's let's go with three. Um, this uh, the question is: Do you have any strategy guidelines to be followed for securing the CI/CD pipeline in the cloud? So, what would be your top three strategies or top three guidelines for securing the CI/CD pipeline in the cloud? Yeah. So. That's a good question because the thing that's cool about using CI/CD to do your deployments is you can be very particular about who you delegate access to those CI/CD tools. So, you know, you don't have to give necessarily um, the developers access to the environments that the CI/CD pipeline is deploying to. You can be very, very detailed about delegating that access. So, number one, the first guideline that I would pick, you know, would be how are we going to delegate? Like, which services truly need access to the infrastructure? that we're deploying to, who needs access to it, and be very detailed about that up front. Um, just kind of going back to earlier about, you know, setting things up loosely, that happens all the time. Um, go in and give some service, delegate some service full control to, to go do something, and it's way broader than it needs to be. So upfront, very tight in terms of uh, delegating access to developers, to services, and anything like that, right? Um, so I'd be number one. Number two, I would do security as early as possible in the pipeline sequence. So, you know, static code analysis, 
um, scanning container images, things like that. If you're doing doc, you know, uh, containerization and stuff like that. So as early as possible, scanning um, code to make sure that there's no vulnerabilities, there's no issues, right? So those could be corrected. And then the other thing is deploying to a non-production environment. This is like, that's the whole point of doing these pipelines, but really getting that right and making sure that those environments aren't going to be left up and compromised as well, because that's another thing that people sometimes forget about. Hey, this is in production. So why are we spending so much time doing security? But you know, if that environment's going to sit there for a while, that is a major concern. So you got to think about that as well. So, you know, treat all the infrastructure just like it's production, because if it's running a public cloud, you know, it could end up being very similar to that. So that's what I would say to that. So, so I want to go, I want to move back a little bit, um, you know, back towards uh, something that you'd mentioned earlier. And you, we kind of talked about this during the GRC side. And I know that on the cybersecurity side, you know, the cybersecurity front, we're huge fans of frameworks, right? Whether you talk about NIST, ISO 27001, you know, uh, CIS or things like that. Um, there was a question that came in from chat from, uh, from Eric Rosas, who says, does the cloud adoption framework address the governance problem? Are there any other frameworks that address common cloud problems? Yeah, the cloud adoption frameworks that these guys, these platforms are building are really good. And they do. They do address the governance issues in, in great depth, actually. So if you're trying to get your head around this, that would be probably one of the first places that I would go. Um, because, I mean, they, I know from experience, both Microsoft and Amazon Web Services have done an amazing job with this. And uh, so, yeah, that's what it'd be, that would be one of my primary resources. And, and I would even I would even go so far as to say, like, like, regardless of whether you plan on being in the governance space or in the security space or in the architecture space, like, like, if you're dealing with cloud, would you agree that just an understanding of the concepts that are inside of this, any of these frameworks would be valuable? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. That's one of the things that I always used to tell people when I was doing live workshops and stuff, which was, you know, the cloud adoption frameworks don't get enough traction or enough respect, and neither does the architecture centers. The architecture centers are filled with a wealth of best practices straight from the field, you know, from people at Microsoft and Amazon that are working with customers all the time. And so all that stuff is uh, surfaced from the field uh, into these adoption frameworks and the guidance. And so, yeah, it's like any, any role that you're in in cloud, those uh, documentation, those pieces of documentation are insanely powerful. And honestly, it's just now starting to get like the, the coverage and the recognition, but it's been out there for a while. So anyways, I would double down on that if you're uh, out there listening to this, 100%. In terms of other frameworks, it's still very early. And you know, you mentioned uh, NIST and stuff like that. You know, those those folks are putting out great stuff. Those different organizations are doing things, but they're also keeping up with the platforms too. So mm. you might find that those ones are a little bit slower to to get updated. But yeah, I think right now the best place if you're brand new is the cloud adoption frameworks as a starting point. You mentioned best practices earlier. There was another question that came in from Chris Nelson um, that was kind of more specific to best practices that says, what are the best practices in estimating and controlling costs? And I know that that is something, if you've talked to Brooks uh, before on our team who does AWS stuff, he is he is crazy passionate about that controlling cost thing. So what are some of your, your best practices for eliminating and controlling costs in the cloud? There's a good one that always comes up, right? That Which is very simple. Um, a lot of times people aren't, very aware of the data transfer costs. I think you mentioned mm. this earlier. Um, you know, and, and and if you've been if you've been working in cloud, you know that hey, we can pump a bunch of data in, but once you leave, you know, we're gonna they're gonna start charging you. <laughs> um, it's like Hotel California, right? You come in, you come <laughs> <out of there>. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, it's not that bad. But I think that 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 gets um, that hits a lot of people. Unexpected data transfer charges, not just back on prem, but going across regions and stuff like that. Um, so upfront, like whatever architecture you're, you're proposing and deploying, you need to think real hard about what are the potential, um, data transfer costs that could be out there. Um, the next one, so data transfer over the wire, and then also, you know, just data transfer or data, um, on disk and how much you're using. That's another place where I've, uh, seen people get hit where they, you know, they just don't realize how much they're going to spend in terms of. Um, you know, storing all those stuff on virtual disks and things like mm -hmm. that. So you got to do your diligence up front and make sure that you fully understand, you know, if we're pumping in 20 terabytes, what is that actually going to cost us based on the services that we're using? That's another thing too. Like all the services, you know, can be very different. You know, you're using a managed service, the cost structure 
is drastically different than if you're doing things in IaaS, right? So spending the time to really think hard about that. Um, and then I think the last one would be policy. The things mm. that the cloud platforms are allowing us to do now, you know, we can be very particular about, hey, you can only spin up this virtual machine type, you know, for example, uh, Azure has got a really good uh, functionality for this in Azure policy where you can just say, hey, you know, I'm improving these four types of VMs that you could use. We know how much they cost. And if it's running 24-7 for 30 days, we know exactly what we're spending. Um, that type of stuff is going to be a big consideration for people. And I'll throw another one out there, just a fourth, yeah. which yeah. is, you know, I said it earlier, you know, having tags is very basic. It's a fundamental concept, but people don't do it. And if you, if you would spend time to actually really do it right, then you could do all kinds of cost reports and know in a split second, oh, I'm spending tons of money over here um, in production or in development or in QA or whatever. Um, so yeah, those would be the ones that I would Real quick on that, on that fourth one, right? We did have a question come through about tagging because you'd mentioned it earlier. And, and so Eli Shaw says noob here. And, and Eli, there's no noobs here. We're here for, for everybody, regardless of where you're at on this journey at all. So not a noob question. But he says, what is tagging for? I do see it while playing in DigitalOcean, for example. Can you just real quick do a, a topical kind of primer on what is tagging? Absolutely. So imagine that you've got a workload that needs to use multiple cloud services, right? You get some virtual machines, um, you get some kind of managed uh, app service, like maybe a web app, managed web apps or serverless functions, things like that. You got some stuff over an object storage, right? To support the application. You got all this stuff spread out all over the place. And what we could do is we can tag all those resources and say, hey, these are all part of the same application. These are all part of the production web app. And it spans seven, eight different services, um, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a way for us to organize our resources to be able to understand what we've got out there. It's a way for us to run costs reports against different environments because they're tagged properly across multiple services. And it's a way for us to actually do governance as well, because uh, some of the policy stuff will take uh, cons you know, into consideration what's been tagged a certain way, and you can build policies around that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's, it's a way for you to identify a resource uh, and, and have a common reference across multiple resources that are tagged that way, if that makes sense. When, when we're talking about the cost analysis too, and I think this may be something that, that maybe many folks aren't familiar with, but we're really talking about being able to um, to do chargebacks inside of some of these larger enterprises where say, you know, the production line is using this cloud resource and it's costing a million dollars a year to process this workload. And so therefore we need to charge the business that that type of thing. I think that that's, that kind of ties in nicely, right? To your concept of controlling costs is being able to have good diligent breakdowns of who's spending money in your cloud where so that you can do the appropriate budgeting so that if you're in the CIO organization or if you're in the IT organization, you're not responsible for somebody else's utilization inside of the cloud. Is that kind of like really the, the big picture that you're talking about there for that that kind of function? Yep, absolutely, 100%. That's a huge part of it. Um, but also being able to just understand what are we spending? Because sometimes you're like, all right, we're going to spend this amount per month, and then you go out there and push it out there, and then it's different, right? So um, on top of what you said, it helps you with that as well, which is, hey, what are we really spending on this? Because um, you may not be charging back to another team inside the organization. You just might be responsible for understanding what the company has to pay. It might be a smaller shop. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you've done a really good job of, of kind of talking about both AWS and Microsoft. It definitely shows your depth of experience and kind of the, the you know, the kind of the diversity that you've got in those cloud platforms. Um, Carlton Whitmore wanted to know, now that Microsoft has somewhat caught up with AWS services, do you think we'll see more people move away from AWS or just add Azure to their, uh, their current model? Yeah, man, it's a really interesting question. What's up, Carlton? Good to see you again. I got Carlton question <laughs> on another live stream. Um, but yeah. He's following um, you around. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome, man. Carlton is uh, one of a, one of the folks in the cloud skills community. He's always nice. active out there helping people out. Appreciate the question, Carlton. But yeah, I uh, I think so. I think um, what's interesting, what's happening to AWS is obviously they've been around for much longer than everybody else, and they had the lion's share of the market. And um, but Microsoft is really closing the gap in a lot of creative ways. And I think that since so many enterprises are huge on Active Directory and uh, using Microsoft products and services, that it's going to drive tons of adoption that people don't even really understand or recognize yet. Um, and then, you know, the developer experience 
with everything that Microsoft is building, Visual Studio Code and GitHub mm. and all that kind of stuff, it's super compelling. Um, so I, I definitely think Microsoft is in a very interesting second place position. And I do think that over the next two, three years, we're going to see way more adoption over at Azure. Um, I don't think that that's going to change anything with AWS. AWS is still going to continue to be huge and continue, continue to keep going. Um, but Microsoft's done a really good job of making it easy to understand, um, especially in the developer space. They got mm. a lot of good tooling um, and they got a good foothold on the enterprise. So, you know, if you understand Active Directory on-prem, it's going to be a natural transition to understand Azure AD. Um, so, yeah, I think that Azure is going to be massive going forward. I think that I think people people have a tendency to forget that um, Microsoft did a really really good job of getting penetration in Office 365 when they were really starting that up. Um, they had the ear of the CIO. They were you know they were really in there talking about the benefits of moving to cloud based you know you know Active Directory, moving to to Outlook in the you know Outlook Web Access in the cloud and things like that. And as they start to become a bigger and bigger player of Azure, I think you're going to see a lot of CIOs go well shoot. I've already got a huge Microsoft presence. Why am I spending all this money in AWS? Why am I spending all this money in GCP? Why don't I just consolidate everything in Azure? Um, would you kind of agree with that? Would you say that that's kind of like led to some of that? I, I call it the, the the Microsoft creeper where they kind of creep into your organization and be like, we could solve that problem for you. <laughs> 100%, yeah, man. That's like what they're good at, right? They're so good. <laughs> Like coming in second place and it's just like being better than the first place. Um, it's just yeah. like their, their total move. Um, but yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think the AWS is awesome, but if you're a Microsoft person, like it's insanely foreign. You get in there yeah. and you're like, what is going on? Yeah. But if you're a Microsoft person, I think that the Azure stuff is a little bit easier to absorb. Yeah. And just to your point, I mean, leadership at big enterprises, they're so familiar with uh, Azure AD and running Windows workloads and doing Office 365, the integration is going to be so good. And uh, yeah, it's going to be hard to stop Microsoft in the next couple of years. Absolutely. Um, we got two more questions for you, Mike, um, you know, and then we're going to wrap it up. This one's coming in from Bashir, uh, let's see, Bashir uh, Barad. Sorry if I butchered your name there, Bashir. Apologize for that. For a lot of organizations, especially enterprise level, DevOps and similar agile approaches is, is very new compared to the traditional waterfall way of working. Do you have any tips or tricks uh, to make this transition easier to the CICD way of working? And is that from an individual perspective or from a business team perspective? Let's, let's do business team perspective since we're talking enterprise level. Yeah, I think that the that's going to be hard because you're going to have to do a culture shift, right, of some kind. And it could be small, but you have to, like, get people um, open to doing things differently. And sometimes, depending on who you're working with, you know, that could be a huge ask. You know, not, there's some people that haven't had to write any code or look at any code, right, or think about that kind of stuff. Um, so I think you need to be able to, from the top of the organization, come in and really sell the idea and then also give people the tools and the time that they need to actually pull it off. And that might mean that you got to take your best people and have them mentoring and doing lunch and learns mm -hmm. and doing hackathons. You know, mm -hmm. it might mean, it might mean completely changing, <clears throat> complete, excuse me, no, it, it might mean completely changing the way that, um, that you do training, right? I mean, it might mean every week everybody's learning and doing stuff and, and socializing that learning. So it depends on the organization. But yeah, I mean, I think for, for what I've seen over the last five years out there, that's really what it's going to take is it's going to take somebody in leadership saying, hey, guys, this is the direction that we're going. Here's how we're going to start doing it. And let's open our minds to doing things differently than we did before. I love your concept of talking about doing the lunch and learns and the hackathons. And I think that that's a, I think that that's a missed opportunity in a lot of organizations. I think people have forgotten what that is like to bring differentiating groups together for every Friday and say, let's take an hour and let me teach you something awesome. Let's take a, uh, you know, a couple days off of work and let's just have a workshop where we talk about the difference between the security team and the IT team. So I, I do love that idea. I really do. I, th I think kind of on that same boat, when we talk about learning, this is the last question we'll do. Um, you know, this one came in from Deepin and says, Mike, how do you make time for continuous learning? This is probably specific to you, you know, since, you, since you're out there, you're doing a lot of education, you're producing a lot of content. How do you make time for continuous learning? Do you block out specific days and times for learning? Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, I love that question because it's something that we all need to think about. Um, so what I do, and I think that everybody has to develop their own protocol, right? It, you know, not everybody wants to be in the 5 a.m. club like me and get up early. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not going to work for everybody, but you do need to have some time where you're on your own 
And, um, you know, I also think if you're a leader out there listening, you know, thinking about how you're going to help your team, you need to be able to like first give your people time to ramp up. But if you're not getting that, you know, and that's one of the positions I was in early in my career, I wanted to work on stuff um, that I wasn't working on in my day job. And I had to figure out, well, when am I going to learn this stuff? You know, Um, so I would say build your own protocol of when am I going to be alone to study? Um, And if I'm not getting it from my my company that alone time, then you need to find a way to like wedge it in. So what I do is I get up really early, um, like 5 a.m. sometimes. And that's when I got the least chaos going on. That's when I have no meetings. Nobody's awake at my house. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I use that time to like curate content that we're going to build. I I use that time to study and do labs. um, And I also use that time as uh, you know, a kind of a deep work session where I'm, I'm trying to do things where I'm really focused. I'm not, you know, on Twitter and LinkedIn and all that stuff at the same time. I'm focused on my learning. And when that's done, then I can do that stuff later. So you know, it takes a discipline, a commitment of saying how consistently and when and where am I going to do this stuff? And uh, if you're not getting it from your work, then you got to figure out how to do it. And the last thing I'll add is that it's very hard to do that at the end of the day when you've already mm. worked eight, nine, 10 hours, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I would say find a place earlier in the day when no one's bugging you where you can ramp up and work on your skills. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure we keep everybody level set because we have a terrible problem. I know it's terrible in cybersecurity. I know it's terrible across all of it, right? Mental health is one of those issues that is very, very, you know, very, very profound in our, in our, in our industry. And so while you're talking about getting up at five o'clock in the morning, you're doing it in a mentally healthy fashion. You're taking your appropriate time off that you need to, right. Can you kind of talk about how you're balancing that work life and kind of that mental health journey as well? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up because I do know that I give the impression sometimes when people see what I do out there, Oh, six books and all these courses, uh, it gets the impression sometimes that, man, does this guy ever stop working? <laughs> um, but I do like, I I'm not working hundred percent of the time. I'm just like insanely productive when I am working. Mm-hmm. And then, and so every day, you know, I actually take time to decompress and, you know, I have a digital sunset. So I'm not on my computer all night. And I close this office up at the end of the day, turn all the lights off, shut the door and to kind of like mentally um, like let it sink in that work is over for the day mm-hmm. and I'm moving on to something else. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll do something completely different, which would be maybe going for a walk, hitting the gym, jumping in a hot tub or doing some kind of like, you know, recovery, just like an athlete would after they got done training. Uh, so I'm real big on, on that. Like if you're going to train hard to learn all this stuff, you also have to recover. And if you ask any like pro athlete, like the most important part of their protocol is the recovery, right? So there's no way that you can work 24 seven. I tried to do that in my twenties and my thirties <laughs> work out very good for me. Um, so yeah, you got to take a break and, and you got to kind of be like a, kind of like a corporate athlete in a way, a little bit like, yeah. you know, you train hard and rest good. You know, it's like very big, very big deal. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us back around on that. Mike, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Um, I appreciate you spending time with with us, with our entire community today and with the entire INE Live team. Um, any last minute parting thoughts uh, before I send you on? Yeah, I like get a lot of questions about how do I get started and this and that. I've got like 135 episodes of cloudskills.fm. So you go find that on YouTube. Uh, Apple, Spotify, we're out there everywhere, but a lot of conversations with so many different people. So if you're looking for kind of an edge and to hear what people are really talking about, check out my podcast, cloudskills.fm. I 100% support that. I think I've heard your podcast. You're, you've got an, an amazing quality podcast out there. So so thank you so much for that. Mike, I'm going to send you back to the green room. I'm going to say goodbye to our INE live audience. Thank you so very much for spending time with me today. That wraps up today's stream, everybody. If you missed it live, you can look for the replay across all of our social channels as well as the INE website. I uh, do truly appreciate all of you spending time with me and, uh, and Mike today. Um, you can you can catch uh, his socials uh, on, uh, on the uh, the previous videos as well. Uh, be sure to do like, subscribe, and follow on all the social platforms so that you can stay in the loop. Make sure you turn those notifications on so that you know when we go live. Um, look for us again live uh, one week from today, Tuesday, November 9th, for another uh, episode of Tech Tuesday, where we'll be focusing on STEM opportunities in education and workplace. We'll see you next time. And until then, have a fantastic week and keep learning.